This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. Welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly talking about today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, John Rabe. Great to see you today. It is great to be with you, as always, Rob, and I'm excited for another tremendous program. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast when we get together about the importance of having a biblical worldview. We're talking about the city of God, right? And the city of God exists among the city of man. And so uh, being able to see life through a biblical lens and having a biblical worldview is so incredibly important. And it's incredibly important as we raise the next generation of Christians who are going to be taking over this country and taking over our churches. Uh, It's incredibly important. And today's guest is someone who I think does an excellent job of propounding that, of defending that, of helping people not only have a biblical worldview, but in a way that gives them confidence in dealing with cultural issues uh, and and has taken that to young people as well, helping them to have a biblical worldview. Yeah, really excited about today's guest. It is a well-known author, speaker, apologist, uh, Sean McDowell, uh, who uh, has his own podcast. Uh, it is called Think Biblically, uh, but just honored to have him on today as the City of uh, God podcast guest. Uh, we also uh, will have him here in person in Fort Lauderdale in March for our Kingdom Come Conference. So excited to talk to him today on the podcast, but also excited to have him in person at the Kingdom Come Conference. Amen. I, I, when I mentioned that we're having him on, a couple of people have asked me the question. Yes, Sean McDowell is the son of Josh McDowell, the yep. great Christian apologist. Uh, and when we say apologist, I assume people know what that means, but it doesn't mean I'm sorry for the Christian faith. It means a defender of the faith in the, in the classic, classical sense, apologia from uh, Peter's writing about giving a defense for the faith that uh, for the hope that you have within you. So uh, Josh McDowell, one of the great apologists for the Christian faith, more than a carpenter, evidence that demands a verdict and so forth. And his son, Sean, has taken up the mantle so beautifully. Excellent communicator, excellent teacher. I think people are really going to enjoy this conversation with him, and I know they'll enjoy seeing him here at Kingdom Come if they make it here in March. Absolutely. Like his daddy has committed uh, his life and his career to uh, investing in the next generation, uh, helping uh, people navigate this secular age, and how do they defend Christianity in in what we call post-Christianity. So author of many books, uh, one of the books uh, is one of my personal favorites, uh, is Evidence for Jesus, Timeless Answers for Tough Questions. And uh, on today's uh, podcast, we talked about how the next generation is being brainwashed to something that we talk about a lot at this ministry. Uh, But we talked to him specifically, how is this next generation being brainwashed? How are they being uh, indoctrinated? We talk about this new phenomenon called deconstruction, uh, seeing record numbers of youth that are raised in the church, eventually walking away from the faith, but not only talking about the sober reality, but what can we do about it? This is a time where we can't retreat as the people of God, but we owe it to the next generation. We owe it to our children and grandchildren uh, to give them a firm foundation, to help them navigate this cultural moment, to help them uh, just walk through uh, what what does it mean to be on a secular college campus and dealing with uh, progressives and uh, the the leaders of uh, departments and and faculty and professors that they're going to uh, be confronted with. We, We owe it to them 
to give them that firm foundation, to give them a biblical worldview, uh, but to give them real answers, real answers that are grounded in the truth of God's word. And, and it's among the top concerns that our people have. You're a, a, a pastor of a of a major church. I'm an elder at a church, and and people are concerned about their children, about their grandchildren in a culture that is more actively working to tear them away from the Christian faith than at uh, at any time that I'm aware of. You know, Christianity is always countercultural. Uh, the world is always trying to push us away from our faith. But the way that it has been amplified through social media and through through the educational system and so forth, it's just unprecedented. I think in the history of the world. So uh, we spend a lot of time on it because that's what folks that we talk to over and over are concerned about. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my grandkids kids. I want them to be saved. I want them to grow up in the faith. I want them to stay in the faith. And so uh, Sean McDowell helps us investigate those questions. An incredible, incredible interview. Uh, I, I pray our audience doesn't miss a second of it. So without further ado, here is our podcast interview with Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean, our ministry recently filmed a documentary entitled, What If the Bible Had Never Been Written? Uh, Mm -hmm. From your perspective, what would the world, particularly the West, look like today if the Bible had never been written? You know, Dr. James Kennedy's book he wrote on this decades ago, I mean, I don't recall, maybe it was in the 90s, really was a game changer for me. My dad gave me that book, and I'd never really thought about the significance that Jesus in particular and the Bible has had not only on Western culture, but on entire world history. And I think what a lot of people want to do is say, well, I want to take all of the positive results that Christianity has brought, but just get rid of Christianity. And it doesn't work that way. We're talking the influence on music, influence on art, education, universities, hospitals, human rights, across the board, although many people who are Christians or claim to be Christians have done, unfortunately, really negative, horrific things in the name of Christ, that pales in comparison to the positive influence that the Bible's had on governments, on individuals, on families far and above any book that's ever been written, period. And I think that proves surprising to a lot of people, Sean, because, uh, you know, I know that you work as a, as an apologist, as an evangelist, you work with youth a lot. And, you know, young people today have really been sort of indoctrinated. And, and it's not even just young people. I, I, I This was the, true, the case when I was in school, but they've been indoctrinated in this idea that uh, all of Western civilization is bad. All of it is oppressive. Uh, all of it, you know, Christianity is a negative force. And of course, today that's been that's been put on steroids by things like a critical race theory and so forth. Uh, what what is a, a in your opinion the the problem when a large chunk of the of the young population believes in things like you know the social justice and and critical race theory? How does that end up affecting us? Well, one thing that's interesting about this, even the idea that society is so-called progressing beyond its formerly oppressive Christian roots and reaching a state of enlightenment is actually a Judeo-Christian idea. You don't have the idea of progress built into the atheist worldview. (laughs) You don't have it built into Eastern worldviews. So this is just another example of people borrowing from the Christian worldview and scripture without even realizing it. 
But the effect that it has is it really shames kids into being quiet about their faith. It shames them into living it out. It shames them into feeling a sense of embarrassment about their roots rather than boldly speaking up and just realizing they are a part of the greatest biblical justice movement in the history of the world. So I see young people kind of just cowering in a little bit of embarrassment. I'm a Christian. I don't know how to defend it. I don't know how to live it out. They say it quietly. Don't put it on social media because they don't realize the positive effects of Christianity that has brought real justice. So I found making the case for how Christians, like we said earlier, have started hospitals and all sorts of human rights and fought for the unborn and been on the avant-garde of overturning slavery really empowers young people to live out their faith more boldly and confidently. Sean, another thing that we're seeing happen uh, in a secular age is uh, the leaders uh, in our universities, leaders in government, leaders in media, uh, pushing this radical gender ideology on the next generation. generation. And I go as far as saying it's not only an ideology, it's like a new religion. Uh, Explain Mm. what you think is happening, particularly in this uh, area of gender and sexuality and how we're seeing a whole new ideology and religion being uh, pushed uh, with the next generation in our society. Well, I completely agree. I was teaching a class at Biola, an undergrad class on gender and sexuality this week. And in every religion or worldview, it answers three questions, roughly speaking, creation, fall, and redemption. And if you look in what's often called transgender ideology, for lack of a better term, human beings are made as essentially sexless beings. That's what we are. We're like Plato, so to speak, that can be molded to our wills. We're not made in the image of God with an essentially sexed maleness or femaleness. The creation account, if there is one, is that we're essentially sexless beings. What's wrong with the world is that we have gender expectations tied to what it means to be male or tied to what it means to be female. This brings in bigotry. This brings in loneliness. This brings in depression and other kind of psychological pain and hurt. So the solution is to abolish gender norms and allow for (laughs) self-determination. Now, of course, you have certain things like sin in transgender ideology, which could be a lot of things such as not using the appropriate preferred pronoun. You have saints who are certain spokespeople standing up, whether they're former athletes like Bruce Jenner or Leah Thomas or other people, uh, you, you know, artists and celebrities speaking up on behalf of it, you have a kind of salvation. If we could just get rid of gender expectations and norms, we could have a just, fair, equitable society. So it really is a different religion and a different worldview, which is why as Christians, we are called to love people with gender dysphoria. We are called to love all people, but this is not the kind of worldview that can be fused with Christianity. It is a fundamentally different way of seeing the world. And I'll tell you, I have a lot of compassion for people who buy this worldview. If I thought this worldview was true, I would campaign for for allowing people of whatever gender identity to compete in sports. I would campaign against bathrooms. I would do some of the crazy stuff we're seeing in California, like outlawing boys and girls' toys in stores 
because these very gender expectations are what cause harm if that worldview were true. My issue is I think this worldview is false. I don't think, for example, when a child is born, the sex assigned at birth, it's not assigned like I could have given a different homework assignment. It's discovered. It's recognized. And so we can only be free when we live in light of reality and recognize God's truth as the world actually is. So in some sense, it sounds melodramatic, but that's really what's at stake right now. Are we going to live in light of reality and experience the freedom that comes from that or not? Excellent. And, and of course, you know, as a member, as a member myself of Generation X, uh, you know, there's there's always this tendency among different generations to look at those who come after them. And, you know, these kids these yeah. days. And yet uh, we've just seen just maybe the seeds for this were in place a long time ago, but we've seen such a radical sea change fueled by by social media and so forth. You tell me, Sean, it seems like all of this stuff is sort of connected together. We have the the gender ideology issues, the, the social justice stuff. At the same time, we have this movement, movement of deconversion where more and more uh, even public Christians are sort of deconstructing their faith uh, in front of the world. Uh, this, this, this phenomenon of deconstruction, explain a little bit of what that is and, and do you see it as connected to all these other issues that we're talking about? I do see it's connected because there's a term that's often used that's similar to worldview, and it's what's called the social imaginary. And it's the idea of certain things that we take for granted, we assume within a given cultural context. So it's kind of the air we breathe, or you might say the water that a fish swims in. It's below the surface. And one of the social imaginaries today is you be you. Live your truth. The word of the year that came out last week or came out recently is authentic. Mm. Be true to yourself. So one of the things that pushed in culture right now that people don't sit down and think through reasonably, they just see it pushed everywhere. I saw it on a tea bag recently. Literally, the sign of the tea bag said, be true to yourself. <laughs> I was talking with a group of high school students, and we're having this conversation. There's some TV show. I don't watch it. It's called Love Island. And this high school student was saying to me, they're saying the whole thing is like, express yourself, follow your feelings, follow your heart. <laughs> well, that's embedded everywhere we turn. So when it comes to this issue of deconstruction, rather than discovering an external truth that I conform my life to, what is increasingly pushed is you be you. I've got to express my story. I've got to be authentic to myself. I've got to discover myself. So this reigning social imaginary now, we've always had people deconverting. I've been studying First Timothy, you know, and you've got two people in there by name that Paul cites. So deconversion is really nothing new. We'll always have it to a degree. But this cultural milieu that's pushing that and celebrating that and talking about that is very novel to today. So I'll make it I'll make it very personal uh, to me. Another evangelist, Tony Campolo, his son came out as a humanist mm. and a major paper in L.A. did a huge story on him and being a chaplain for humanists and atheists because an evangelist son becomes, you know, an atheist chaplain. 
None of these papers have ever done a story on me because it's not very interesting that an evangelist son becomes, wait for it, an evangelist, evangelist. and an apologist. <laughs> so we're always looking for something shocking. We're always looking mm. for something new. We're always pushing the limits. So there's there's just this milieu that takes place that encourages a kind of deconstruction that didn't in the past. It used to be discouraged and risky. Now it's encouraged to express yourself. And if you frame it right, you'll get even more followers on on uh, on social media, et cetera, for pushing back against the oppressors. Sean, you're absolutely right. All throughout church history, we always see people leaving the church, deconverting. Um, and the natural reaction, unfortunately, from churches and denominations is to compromise, uh, compromise on biblical truth, compromise in the name of relevance and cultural accommodation. And we're seeing that um, today in the 21st century. What is the call to the church, particularly in North America, in this age where it seems like we've got to water down our message. We've got to uh, change our approach. Uh, the next generation is leaving the leaving the church and leaving the faith in droves. What is the call to action to return to biblical faithfulness and no longer compromise? Well, if we're talking about parents, here's what we know. The All the data shows, and I've studied this going back to the early 70s, if you want to pass on your faith and have your kids not deconvert, for example, three things. Number one, you got to model what it means to live an authentic Christian life that's attractive. One of the reasons I'm a Christian is I saw my parents living out what they believed was true in their marriage, in their life, and it was appealing. It was attractive to me. I wanted a life of meaning and significance and authenticity and contentment like my parents have. Step number one. <clears throat> Step number two, build an intimate, close relationship with your kids. The largest study I'm aware of out of a sociologist at USC, Vern Bankston, it was four generations, 35 years, 3,500 people. It's published in a book called Faith and Families with Oxford Press, 2013. And they said the most statistically significant factor in faith transmission is a, quote, warm relationship with the father, a warm relationship with the father. So model your faith, build relationships with your kids. And number three, have intentional spiritual conversations like we see in Deuteronomy chapter six, woven through life. If you do those three things, there's no formula to guarantee success, but that is biblical, number one, and it's just statistically tied to the most successful faith transmission. So embedded with that, we see two things. We see truth passing on a faith that has been given to us. And second, we see relationships. So the church needs to dig in and more effectively than ever teach what biblical truth is, teach why it's actually good. Like not only what the Bible says about marriage, but why God's design is good and brings freedom. We have to build healthy relationships and then teach people how to live out their faith and frankly, we're not doing a good job with this right now. In the American culture, we have no ability to deal with suffering and pain and a cost to our faith. Our faith has been pretty cheap for decades. And now, like you said, the temperature is being turned up. So we got to teach truth, healthy relationships, 
and the ability to navigate a culture that increasingly sees us as the oppressor, sees us as hateful, sees us as harmful. Well, welcome to the first century church. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. And, and that that doesn't mean compromise. That some so often people think that that just means sort of uh, shaving off the rough edges and and appearing more uh, amenable to these things in the culture. It, it really doesn't mean that. As you say, it's 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 digging those roots roots deeper. On one of these issues that we've spent some time talking about on this podcast as well, you know, gender roles are at the center of this, and even the term gender is sort of newfangled. I mean, we said sex yeah. roles uh, fifty years ago, and that meant something. But uh, biblical manhood uh, is, is certainly under fire. Even the idea, any any traditional idea of maleness or manhood is, is under fire when we don't know what a man even is. You, It's now called toxic masculinity. Uh, the, these sorts of things are seen as, as intrinsically harmful. What does the Bible say about the role of men, and what is the, the culture trying to do to sort of undo that that definition of what a what a man is supposed to be my favorite book on this in a while and there's been some great books come out recently i love the book by nancy piercy mm, yes and her it, it's the war what is the title the war like the, on toxic, the, tox, or the, the, you know, the toxic war on masculinity go, yeah. and she walks through and makes the argument that it's actually conservative Bible-believing Christians who believe there's a difference between males and females and different roles who have the least amount of abuse in their relationships. Now, people who come to church and imbibe just enough to think that a woman should submit to a man, they actually are, are worse and are bad and don't treat their spouse as well. But those who actually believe that God has designed men and women and given them different roles in the church and in the family, but understand what that means. Like we submit to one another, we submit to Christ willingly, and the husband is called to lay down his life for his wife like Christ did for the church. It's understanding that that actually brings less abuse, less toxic masculinity. So sadly, there have been some abuses, right? People have talked about ways in churches where we've had certain stereotypes. I mean, I'll give you guys an example. When I speak at a church, I'll say, give me an example of a manly man in the Bible. And I always get two, David and Samson. Mm. Almost nobody says Jesus. We have this perception that Jesus was a little bit feminine according to certain stereotypes. And then I point out and I'll say, look, when was David acting manly? Well, when he went to war, he killed Goliath. Well, when was David acting girly, according to the stereotypes? Well, he wrote poetry <laughs> and he played a harp. There's no sense that David was acting manly here and feminine there. Take Jacob and Esau. Who's more stereotypically masculine? Well, my goodness, Esau is a hairy hunter. You can't get more stereotypically <laughs> masculine than that. Jacob was a hairless mama's boy, right? <laughs> Again, stereotypes. But God chooses Jacob. Mm. And there's no sense that Jacob is just not as manly as Esau. So part of the tension that we live in is we have to avoid getting rid of the differences between males and females 
the different roles that God has given us without adopting certain cultural stereotypes, like maybe a John Wayne kind of perception or Clint Eastwood perception, which ends up doing harm to people who don't fit in within those stereotypes. Then they find the larger cultural narrative about gender that much more appealing. So I think the scriptures clearly say that God has made us essentially sexed beings. God has made us male and female built into our bodies. We're also called to live out our maleness and live out our femaleness in the church, in the home, etc. But the Bible doesn't always give specifics of what that looks like. There is some flexibility. And my encouragement for the church is to be careful and to be wise about how we approach that. Make sure it's biblical. Make sure it's not borrowed from culture. There might be more leeway in there what it means to be a man and means to be a woman than we've often modeled within the church itself. Sean, we're excited to have you in Fort Lauderdale at our annual Kingdom Come Conference, which will be March 14th through the 16th. And the theme of that conference is standing for truth in an upside down world. Why is it Mm. so important for Christians in the 21st century to be bold about their faith in a culture around them that is in chaos? Because there is no freedom without truth. G.K. Chesterton said, you can remove a tiger from the zoo but don't remove it from its stripes. Having stripes is in part what it means to be a tiger. You can remove a camel from the zoo, but don't remove it from its hump. Having a hump is in part what it means to be a camel. (laughs) We only know how something should live. We only know how we should treat something when we first understand what's true about it. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Lies bring slavery. Truth brings freedom. But we're at a point in our culture, I think for the first time in a long time, where truth can actually cost us something. Mm. Well, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. So the more people that speak up and say, I'm not compromising truth, I'm living it out, it strengthens the rest of us. Sometimes I feel like I'm John the Baptist in the wilderness crying out, taking hits. When I see other people in big platforms of small speaking up and and speaking truth, it gives the rest of us courage. It gives the rest of us confidence. More than ever, we need Christians to speak up truth with a loving heart because you're absolutely right. The world has turned upside down. That's a great word. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being on the City of God podcast today. We are grateful for your ministry, for your family's legacy, and so Mm. excited to have you uh, in Fort Lauderdale, March 14th through the 16th at the Kingdom Come Conference. God bless you, and may the Lord be with you uh, as you continue to navigate uh, this uh, world in chaos with the biblical truth of uh, God's kingdom and his good news. Rob and John, great to have you. I'm really looking forward to it. Keep up the good work. We pray that you thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Sean McDowell. And also just a reminder that he will be with us in person in March at the Kingdom Come Conference at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. So we pray that you would be able to join us in person uh, for a great weekend here at Coral Ridge and the Kingdom Come Conference. Uh, But also make sure you get your tickets so you can hear speakers like Sean McDowell in person. If you were blessed by today's conversation, we pray that you would pass it along 
to family and friends as we navigate together what it means to explore uh, and battle through these cultural issues through the lens of God's infallible word. I pray that God would richly bless you, and we hope to see you here next week on The City of God. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast where Christ meets culture.